Greetings and welcome to the pod. Ocean pools are a delight. I love swimming in them and they are also quite often simply beautiful places to be. Dr. Marie-Louise McDermott has written a PhD on ocean pools and runs a fantastic website dedicated to ocean pools, All Into Ocean Pools, Inc. I had a wonderful chat with Marie-Louise about her love of ocean pools, why Australia, Sydney in particular, has such a rich tradition of them and their influence on Australian life. I started by asking her whether she was always into swimming and ocean pools. was a while coming. I was a late swimmer. I didn't learn to swim until I was 11 because I was an asthmatic child with a family doctor who believed you should keep asthmatic children out of water. So I spent a lot of time watching other people swim. Um, and then I, so when I did learn to swim, it was a very big excitement for me. Um, and I swam in various places. Ocean pools weren't terribly important to me um, until I was working down in Canberra and I went with a friend to visit the uh, Bermagui and went down to the Blue Pool there and thought it was the most wonderful place I'd ever encountered in my whole life. Yes, and I then know of course it. I realised that there were more things like the Blue Pool up and down the coast. The Blue the Blue Pool at Bermagui it's a fabulous um, ocean pool. It's right at the foot of a cliff, and it's an extraordinary place. You come down to it and it's just it feels absolutely magical. And I think that one really got me interested in ocean pools. And then um, I was living on um, the New South Wales south coast and realised just how many of them there were in the Illawarra. And then I got really curious about these places and how many of them there were and um, how they'd come to be and why, although they were still sort of public places that were important to local communities and really um, well used, quite prominent and popular, they'd sort of dropped out of our, the way we talked about the coast and the, the history of beaches and the history of, of swimming. So that they're places where you know, that continued to be important long after the patrol beaches had come into being and continued to complement them. But somehow we'd sort of neglected the contribution that ocean pools had made to our, our beach cultures, our pool cultures and the whole use of our recreational coasts. So I thought it was time to start having a look at that. And, um, you know, decades later, I'm still looking. And you're still looking. And well, I found other people who share these interests, yeah. But the, the thesis title is... Um is great. Wet, wild and convivial past, present and future contributions of Australia's ocean pools to surf, beach, pool and body cultures and recreational coasts. It's it's fantastic. So how did ocean pools start in Australia? Well, I mean, ocean pools can be created by a variety of means. You know, you can get ones that are purely created by natural forces. The figure eight pools in Royal National Park would be one of those. But mostly the ones we talk about are ones where... Um, the 19th century phrase was art has assisted nature. So there's um, people have dug, uh, excavated uh, swimming holes in, into rock platforms or they've added some concrete to smooth them out or they've created a concrete uh, structure that's you know, uh, part of a, a rocky shore. So there are all sorts of um, ways to create them. So some of them were you know, natural, they were always there. Um, most of the ocean pools we use these days um, have been created since colonisation because prior to that, the people who lived along the coast 
learned to swim and acquired their surf skills early and they were very comfortable in the water and knew all the good swimming places along the coast but had no need to really create these extra special places for bathing and swimming. Um, and, of course, with colonisation, we had a lot of people who had very few swimming or surf skills but suddenly found themselves on a coast where the summers were hot and humid and the most comfortable place to be was underwater for as long as possible. Okay. And I guess things like mm. fear of sharks and you know, lack of surf skills is a driving factor. That's right. The sharks were always obvious. Um, so contra- so while the uh, first settlement happened in at Sydney, um, in Sydney the settlement stayed concentrated on the harbour for a long time. And, of course, people were worried there about the sharks as well, so they created swimming enclosures. But the ocean pools themselves started uh, first in the settlements where you had... Um, a colonising population living in close proximity to the surf coast. So at Newcastle and Wollongong, uh, people were closer to the surf than they were in Sydney where the population was still clustered around the harbour and not very interested in the surf coast until the late 19th century. What about sewerage and raw runoff and, and that sort of thing? Did that affect the pools or did that mean we needed pools? <laughs> <laughs> um, that really, uh, water quality, um, you know, it's always relative. It's, it's compared to, you know, what, what's the quality of water that you're, you consider acceptable to swim in? And um, for a long time, uh, people were happy to accept the water quality that was available in um, harbours, rivers, oceans, um, because the um, being cool was perhaps more important than the absolute cleanliness of the water. And also you've got to look at the fact that water supply has been a big problem uh, for a long time. Um, for most coastal communities, an ocean pool or a tidal pool was the most affordable um, way to create a pool. They didn't have to pay for the water. The water was always there. And water hasn't been you know, abundantly available. So any sort of water was, was prized. Um, and people, uh, the importance of swimming on their particular patch of the coast can be so important to them that uh, people will be willing to overlook uh, water quality um, and you remember the, the stage when Sydney's, uh, before Sydney acquired the deep ocean outfalls for its sewage around the end of the 20th century, um, that people, you know, would make jokes about the surf at Bondi and the Bondi cigars. And yes. they would keep surfing. Right. So water quality is very much what people will accept. And it also depends on the alternatives available. So until um, the last half of the 20th century, uh, there really weren't that many in-ground pools because of the difficulty of, you know, um, uh, uh, rivers and lakes and oceans. The water was there and it was free and it was generally considered clean enough. Um, but after the, um, in the late 20th century, the, there's a lot of energy that goes into improving uh, water supply arrangements and suddenly um, co- um, councils can afford to create in-ground and indoor pools with filtered chlorinated water. And, you know, that seems more modern and suddenly there is this point of comparison. Do I swim in the, the clean, um, chlorinated modern pool or do I go to the ocean where the water may be more lively and more interesting but perhaps the water quality isn't quite so good because the uh, water supply um, issue got much more attention initially than the issue of how we treated the sewage that got discharged back into uh, um, oceans and other waters. Um, other waters. Yeah. So... Uh, so there was this this lag phase, and you find that so up from uh, probably 
early 19th century through to the 1950s, ocean pools are, you know, the easiest form of uh, safe public swimming air that coastal communities along the surf coast can create. Um, and it's only after that that they start to be able to afford to create in-ground and indoor pools. And then, of course, people rather liked them. You could They were controlled environments. They were, you know, better if you wanted a stage of swimming country. You didn't have to plan it around the state of the tide. Uh, you could uh, you know, determine the uh, opening hours. Have, I mean, generally, it's a much more controlled uh, environment. And so that was so appealing that I think Waverley Council is probably now the only council along the New South Wales coast where ocean pools are still the only form of public pool. Everybody right? else got into and created uh, you know, a, a variety of other places to swim. And so from that, after the 1960s, we don't see quite as much drive to create new ocean pools. People are interested in keeping the ones that they've got um, usable and campaigning to have some ones that have closed reopened. Um, but now we're starting to see the reaction that says, well, yes, we have all these other pools, but they really don't do the job. They can't supply the same swimming experience that an ocean pool can. And, you know, um, so we've got communities at uh, places like Ballina and Port Macquarie, um, and certainly over here in Western Australia uh, around Cottesloe and other areas campaigning to have new ocean pools created because, uh, yes, it's possible to create other sorts of pools now um, and it's possible to do that uh, in an affordable way, but they don't deliver the same sort of benefits. That's really interesting. I was I was wondering when the, the last one we made was. Have we, have we made one in the last 50 years at all? Uh, uh, probably. Uh, it really stopped around the 1960s. 70s. Um, again, that sense of protecting the coastal environment was also part of the issue. That suddenly preserving the rock platforms became a more important concern than it probably had ever been before. Some of the youngest ones would be the one at Yamba, which would be 1960s, and down in the Illawarra uh, to Roger and Balambi, and they were created around the time of the um, the Tokyo Olympics, so 1964, I think that is. So after that, they started to become thought of, and it was unfortunate as well, um, as heritage, which is good for preserving the ones you've got, but almost a barrier to creating new ones. If you start to define them as a type of facility no longer constructed, then it takes quite a while to break through that mindset and say, well, uh, just not no longer constructed, just haven't been constructed for a while. There's no reason why we can't make new ones. Um, and there are still suitable sites along the coastline, and there's a bigger coastal population than ever before, and we still have plenty of people uh, in that population who are, don't have strong swimming or surf skills and might find the ocean pool far more um, appealing than a um, uh, than swimming between the flags at the patrol beach or swimming in other sorts of pools. And also, if you are a swimmer, they are a particularly interesting swimming experience because they're this lovely betwixt and between place. So they're they're part of the beachscape, they're part of the poolscape. They've always got delightful views because they have to be sighted um, on a rock platform along the post where you're going to have delightful views. The water is always going to be lively. You're going to be sharing that water with whatever um, the plants and animals are of the sea. So, yes, they, they, you, know, you can be seeing fish, you can be seeing seaweed, you can be having encounters with octopus, you might be noticing crabs, all these things that... In the um, the more controlled indoor in ground pools, uh, the only living things in them are supposed to be people. 
whereas the ocean pools, it's a very different arrangement. You have to share. Some of the early ones, the Brontin Bondi pools, were created by um, an engineer from the Harbours and Rivers Department uh, of the New South Wales government. And, you know, I think very much that, um, you know, New South Wales coast has very few really good harbours. So creating new harbours was an important thing to be doing in the 19th century. And you can think of, it's the same sort of skills. In a lot of ways, you can think of ocean pools as being safe harbours for swimmers. They're not absolutely safe, and that's part of their charm as well. Um, but they're, um, they're, they're on the edge. Much more accessible if you're not, not a great swimmer. And also there are places where, yes, you can have... Um, a swimming club. You haven't been able to set an official record in sea water um, since the early 20th century. But if you're having a swimming club and the point of your club is to uh, enjoy swimming and enjoy um, interacting with the members of your club and you're pre- and prepared to have you know happy and convivial uh, competitions where it doesn't terribly matter if someone gets washed out of the pool or the waves <laughs> push, uh, make a difference. Um, so you really can't get ever... Um, you can't. It's a swimming environment where you can never stay totally focused on on following the black light. Yes. It's always, you know, making you pay attention to more of your surroundings than that. Um, and I think it promotes that uh, that sense of conviviality. You know, it's not about um, control, and it's not about just going fast. Yes. Although, I mean, speaking of going fast, I mean, that's where all you know. That Australia has a pretty storied swimming history. That's where a lot of Olympians learnt to swim. That's right, and um, you know, and they were um, so the you know people who've swum at ocean pools. Well, you're looking at you know all of the early nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century. So Fanny Durack setting records in ocean pools, um, Anna Kellerman's performing at ocean pools, um, Alec Wickham, of course. You know, all of the the big swimming families uh, of the time. New strokes are being developed. You know, the Australian call really is a, a surf stroke that you know was developed you know in those ocean pools and it before that when people were racing in those pools they were um you know they're doing side stroke they're doing breast stroke um and you can see how uh the uh, crawl stroke is much better adapted to um to surf conditions and really much more helpful if it, when your life-saving starts to develop into surf life-saving so people can get recover more ground faster that's get right people in time to rescue them with that stroke yeah and allows you to yeah breathe forward a little bit if you learn to do that, and which helps you in the surf. So, Ooh, yeah, that's right. So the the Cavill family were you know quite involved with um with the development of that stroke, and the um the fact that it's being developed in harbour and ocean tools, I think uh, really helps, and and people can immediately see the benefit of, of uh, that stroke rather than side stroke or breast stroke in those sorts of conditions. And Australia is, of course, not the only place in the world that has ocean pools. South Africa has a has a bit of a parallel to Australia, I understand. That's right. Um, South Africa's a less well-documented, but I was only there for about a couple of weeks in 2010, and I managed to photograph 50 ocean pools. So, um, yeah, so I think there are about, I think I've just seen an Instagram account that mentions 19 in um Cape Town, and you'll find them in the Eastern Cape and also in um, KwaZulu-Natal along that coast as well. So, yes, same sort of reasons. Uh, similar things, that the colonising population wanting a safe way to swim and also a very big awareness of the shark issues. Oh, South Africa especially, yes. And do you have a favourite around the world? Around the world? Um, 
Well, I lived in uh, Maroubra in Sydney for about six years, so I always do have a special feeling for the Mara Pool at Maroubra, which is one of those delightful pools that looks like the the rock platforms just dissolved to create the pool. And where uh, you know, and when the surf's up, it, it's an absolute washing machine at the pool. But it's it's so wonderful. You get people um, you know gathering at the top of the cliffs to admire it and photograph it because it it really does look fabulous on the wild days too. Oh, Even uh, when you can't swim there. No, that that's great because I guess it sort of fits into the environment. There are some pools, ocean pools around the world, like the one on Waikiki. It's kind of had some environmental bad effects as far as I understand it with erosion of the sand. But then you've got the ones built into the rock that look like they're supposed to be there are, are quite amazing. That's when I first started um, doing my work, I was um, I got a, a grant from the... Um, New South Wales Heritage Office to create a website about New South Wales ocean pools, which I set up, launched in 2006, took down in 2011 because I uh, wanted to say, uh, look at things rather differently by then. But um, one of the questions people asked me, they said, uh, you're looking at, at the pools, but weren't they always there? And I thought that was a fabulous comment because it shows that you know they really are about design with nature. If you don't design well enough with nature, that pool is going to get swept away. And the ones that do stay do look like they belong, look like they should always have been there. Yeah. Uh, and people find it hard to imagine their favourite beaches without these places. I love Bilgola. I think that's a great port. Mm, mm, <laughs> it's mm. beautiful. Along the northern beaches, they're really very important too because, um, you know, there wasn't much settlement north of Manly for a long time. And, you know, it was a lot of people who had, um, came down for the weekend and would camp or had weekend houses. And so often the first community facilities that would be created, you know, there'd be a patrol beach, which is pretty easy to set up because you need some lifesavers and a set of flags. And then very often, you know, the um, the ocean pool would come next and it would help because, of course, our surf lifesavers are volunteers, so they're only able to patrol the beaches, you know, on, um, on weekends and public holidays. So that the ocean pool complemented that by providing a, a place that people could swim in safety even when the beach nearby wasn't being patrolled. And, yeah, they really did help spread, um, uh, um, increase the density of settlement up on the, the northern beaches. And there, there are some women's only pools, aren't there, I believe? Or are they women's only times? Or No, at the moment I know of um, one uh, pool, ocean pool, solely reserved for women and children, and it's McIver's Bars, which is one of the four ocean pools around Sydney's Coogee Bay. Um, but back in the 19th century, uh, you you if you wanted to be respectful you didn't have men women and, and children all in the pool at the same time you had men had one set of uh, either separate pool or separate hours women children had the separate pool or separate hours and they're often quite widely separated so down at Coogee you know the men are swimming at the rock pool um the Giles Baths rock pool on the northern headland the women were over on the southern headland Kayama they're on different sides of the harbour Wollongong they're spaced apart at um um uh, Bronte, you know, they've got separate times. Um, and the trouble is, of course, that, you know, women were expected to uh, swim during the hours when men might be uh, at work. But if you're a working woman, that wasn't a very good state it of affairs. Not very help. doesn't help, does it? No. No, no, it doesn't help. So it took a, while, a part of the reason for that was that the wearing, the wearing of swimming costumes wasn't a uh, standard practice. And it was really when swimming became a sport and, you know, a spectacle, people wanted to be... Uh, watched and admired that the uh, wearing of swimming costumes became um, much more normalised. Uh, and then once that happened, um, the uh, beaches, um, it wasn't considered respectable to swim, well, it wasn't even legal to uh, to bathe on the open beach in the daylight hours. Um, 
And after that was legalised, um, again, it was this attempt to keep things respectable by keeping having men and uh, bathe separately from women and children. But on an open surf beach, when um, the men were more likely to have swimming surf skills than the women and children, um, it had that arrangement had to change on safety grounds. So older municipalities that already had ocean pools uh, resisted for a while because they said, well, why should we do such a drastic thing, you know, in the safety of our, our baths? But people who um, had the beach as their first point of reference began to find it very strange that everybody couldn't be in the same pool at the same time. And so uh, that changed. So we've got this one um, holdout now. Um, and it's one of the four ocean pools on Coogee Bay and it operates under an exemption from the anti-discrimination law in New South Wales. Okay. Because it is a special place and it does still address a special need. And, and you mentioned Annette Kellerman there. So she um, was quite... Well, you mentioned her earlier as an ocean swimmer. She was quite famous with regards to swimming costumes and breaking down the, the issues there, weren't yes, she? but it's really quite interesting because when Annette was swimming in uh, Australia, she was just swimming in what was the standard racing costume, and that was really... It was a unisex costume, identical for, for men and women, and it really was just sort of a loose, um, like a T-shirt top, over a pair of trunks, and and you had bare legs. Now, and that was quite okay in Australia. No one was getting excited about um, the bare legs. But in the United States, uh, when she tried to wear the the same costume onto a beach, that was sensational. And so, to comply with the uh, American laws, which really were did not want to see women's bare legs on the beach at all, she had to sew stockings onto her standard costume. So if you have a look at what the Americans call the Annette Kellerman swimming costume, it's um, basically like a standard racing costume with uh, with tights. With tights, right. Mm. And you'll see the original um, um, logo for the Jansen Diving Girl. She was wearing a little uh, cap with a pom-pom and socks that came up over her knees. <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem so and, streamlined. <laughs> no, no, so it, it would seem much more sensible to swim in with bare legs and bare feet. But yes, it took a while for for the Americans to accustom themselves to this idea. <laughs> well, some of the you know the super suits of recent years, the neck to knees made out of plastic, probably not too far different. Probably a little That's more right. streamlined. It, <laughs> yeah. So Annette Kellerman, um, it's not so far from the bikini, and it's not so far from a stinger suit. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and mm. I wanted to ask you about your your very comprehensive website, All Into Ocean Pools Inc. How did how did mm. that start, and uh, what's what's the idea? Oh, we've been going for um, several years now. Um, when I finished my PhD, um, I looked at uh, the work I've been doing on ocean pools, and I knew I, some of that work needed to continue, and it needed to uh, cease to be a a, a one person. Activity. So I got together a group of people and we incorporated this association, All Into Ocean Pools Inc. And its mission is to advocate for and promote the ongoing use, study, and celebration of ocean pools around the world. I suppose, as you can see, I started out looking at ocean pools in New South Wales, shifted my focus to Australia, and it's now shifted to the, um, the worldwide issues because it does help to put everything into context. Um, and one of the things people would say to me when I was doing my research was, you know, they're uniquely Australian, aren't they? And I'd say, well, no, if you think that, you haven't been to South Africa and there are ocean pools 
um, in the Canary Islands, in the Azores, you'll find some in Ireland. Um, you know, there are, uh, they're not uniquely Australian. There's one uh, down the bottom of New Zealand. Um, and knowing the variety of places where they continue to be important and of value and prize, I think really does help to uh, to put the, the, the local issues into context so that um, Australia, of course, is said, very enthusiastic and a great many um, ocean pools and they've been part of our beach and swimming cultures for a long time. And that's quite different to the United States or the United Kingdom where um, the seaside culture in the UK was more about being really beside the sea than in it and uh, focused on, on piers and, you know, the use of, uh, until about 1914, the use of bathing machines um, rather than um, ocean pools or swimming in the water. So in the UK, sea pools were important in um, Scotland, Isle of Man. Um, they've been important in Ireland um, more than in the, in the classic UK seaside resorts. And one of the big warnings there is that in the 1920s, um, when uh, outdoor swimming became fashionable right across Europe and they a lot of the pools in Britain, uh, they were, were all indoor pools because of the climate. And so suddenly this urge to create places where people can swim outdoors, it's very interesting and it's very fashionable, and they create a number of wonderful pools. And the sad thing is that a lot of those have been filled in. Really? Um, the ones at Scarborough, yeah. Uh, so, um, and they've, they've ceased to exist. And so it, the UK is a great example of how people can turn away from places like this um, and there's one down the, and again in the UK the pressures on local government have been very intense and a lot of uh, local councils have found that they could not continue to operate their public swimming pools they've closed down um, some of them are being run by volunteer organizations and community groups uh, and of course they are then facing the ongoing problem of finding a raising the money that they need uh, to keep their pools operational. So there's, there's uh, an ocean pool in Cornwall that fought for a long time to, um, uh, to keep the pool open and is now being run by a group of volunteers. So I would prefer that, you know, in Australia we can avoid getting into that situation. Uh, most of our ocean pools are maintained by um, surfside councils. Some of them maintain quite a range of ocean pools like the city of Wollongong for instance or um, again uh, Randwick City Council and the Northern Beaches Council um, but uh, you know, there are you know periodic calls for to see whether council can cease uh, maintenance of some of those pools so it is a matter if you want the pools to stay open you have to be vigilant you have to campaign you have to keep showing that there is a, a community demand for these places um, and that it can't, you know, other pools cannot simply be substituted for ocean pools because they do a different set of jobs and ocean pools do some jobs that other sorts of pools just can't do. Other sorts of pools are not designed as beach safety measures. There must be a, I mean, I, I guess there is a, there's always a cost in maintenance, but there, there must be cheaper than your local community in-ground pool, I would have thought, that's, in that they don't require heating, um, they, they flush themselves out to a certain extent. They can. Um, the maintenance is going to be more difficult because there's less controlled environments, so the maintenance arrangements will have to be worked around the tide. Um, the siting of the pool may be such that you cannot get the equipment you might normally use to shift sand around to move the sand out of the pool. So there are 
those sorts of issues, um, depending on yeah how much the pool is used. You know, you, you may need to have pumps installed to keep pumping water in to make sure that even if there are a lot of people in the pool, the water quality continues to be um, a, a standard that would now be considered acceptable. Um, so there there are issues, but in general, um, if you looked at the cost of providing the uh, the town water that is used uh, to fill in ground and indoor pools, um, that has to cost more than using supply that just comes from the sea. Yes, I would have thought so, yeah. Um, and so in terms of environmental footprints, the ocean pools have to be you know, a far more sustainable option than, than other alternative sorts of, of uh, public pools. And they're mostly um, public and free, aren't they? I mean, Bondi icebergs, I think you pay to swim in, but the vast Bondi majority... Bondi icebergs, you pay to swim in. The uh, MacIver's uh, bars, is, uh, I think it's $2 now. Wiley's bars charges a fee. Most of them are not. Um, and again, that's partly because um, they're thought of as, as part of the beach and and part of as a beach safety uh measure a refuge that should be available to all people at all times so you don't want to put any barriers um, to stop people using um, those schools or having access to them um, and so yeah that's so 19th century pools were often um, chargeable some of the municipalities like Kayama never did charge for their pools um, but again when, when they started to be thought of as part of the free public beach uh, the idea of charging for them just seemed absurd yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite seem right, does it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know I've taken you well over time, but I might ask you one more. Uh, tell me about your art and uh, literary awards that you offer for, for ocean pool-inspired right. art. That's right, because, um, as I said, our mission is to advocate for and promote the ongoing youth study and celebration of ocean pools. So one of the ways people celebrate ocean pools is by... Um, by making, writing about them, uh, by making artworks, taking pictures, making sculptures. So we wanted to show, uh, showcase that aspect of ocean pools because um, particularly when people go out to do community consultation about um, ocean pools, they have the idea that there's only one way to use them and that's actually to go down and sort of immerse yourself in the water. Whereas I think there are many other ways that people use and relate to ocean pools. Um, Sometimes, you know, people like to, uh, because they're such a... Um, an aesthetically pleasing environment. People just like to to walk there. They like to be beside them. They like to admire them. They like to take images of them. Uh, sunrise, sunset. Uh, often they uh, the images are of unpeopled pools uh, or the the lone swimmer pool mm, mm. in the pool. Um, occasionally you get ones of empty pools of pools being maintained. But so um, we wanted to um, to capture that and and just recognise that they photographers. And, um, and writers and sculptors are some of the people who are using ocean pools in these um, um, important um, but often neglected ways that they're not realised um, that they have that aesthetic significance as well as being um, purely utilitarian significance as a public pool. I think um, I think more... Uh, I don't think many other sorts of, uh, of public pool attract photographers in the same way. Or nearly as often as sometimes at uh, sunrise, I think we've got more photographers than swimmers. And of course, there's nothing to stop you being both. The photographer, you know, you take a photograph and have you swim. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of the people who've been entering our um, our competitions have been 
uh, you know, our ocean pools enthusiasts have been swimming at them for years, sometimes at the same pool, sometimes at a range of different pools. And uh, it's been also a way for us to make contact with uh, ocean pools enthusiasts from other places around the world so we can look at um, uh, photo sharing sites like Flickr and see that people have been posting uh, images of ocean pools in places that we didn't know about and we can get into contact with them and suggest that they might like to enter their images for our awards. And, um, yes, so we've managed to find some fabulous uh, images of uh, ocean pools. And I think the first year, one of the winners was Jennifer Baird, who'd entered a a print that showcased uh, some of Sydney's um, ocean pools. And they had that really sense of joy and brightness and all the fun of summer about it, and that was terrific. And the the other winner that year uh, was a... um, Lizzie Buckmaster Dove, um, um, an Illawarra artist, and she lives near the Coaldale Pool. And what she had done, while well, she you know, walks by, she knows that pool. It's a very uh, local and treasured place for her. And bits of the pool um, had broken off. And when it was being, um, the pool was being rebuilt and redeveloped, she uh, collected um, pieces of a rock which, uh, that had once formed part of the swimming pool, pieces of cement that had the blue paint on them. Yeah. And she created a series of wonderful sculptures with them and she photographed those. And she had somewhere, she was arranging these rocks around the rock platform near the Coldale Pool. She had an exhibition in the Wollongong Art Gallery where she had one artwork where she had taken these pieces of rock and suspended them from the ceiling by um, fishing line to create uh, a wave shape. And it was just beautiful. Cool. That sounds great. Mm. I'm going to definitely mm-hmm. um, spend some time browsing around <laughs> some of the links there. And so we've been, um, you know, we've had uh, our winners have been, again, we tend to attract mostly Australian entries, but we also get entries from uh, Portugal. Um, one of our um, winners of our uh, last year's awards was photographing Port- uh, some of Portugal's ocean pools. And um, we had um, the person who took out our research award last year um, was a um, Valentin Ray, uh, a Swiss student who had been researching the ocean pools in the uh, Azores Islands in the Middle Atlantic. Oh wow! Yes, yeah, so it, it's it really does help to bring things into perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a great way to see the world. Go on an ocean ocean pools tour of the world. That's well. I do um, get emails from some of our members who said, "Look, I've been reading now. Now I want to go to the Canary Islands or South Africa. Or, <laughs> yep. you know, now I've realised there are all these other places that I want to go and swim." So yes, and I think um, that uh, is happening now. You do get companies who are running swimming holidays, um, and again, the reaction that we're noticing here when there are other sorts of public pools available, you discover that sea pools have something special. Um, in the UK, that's sort of comes under this wild swimming movement. And they actually have an outdoor swimming society um, because said swimming had become there so much of an indoor sport and recreation that uh, to doing it outdoors has, you know, um, been quite a change. And, yes, so um, it used to be you would go to uh, a bookshop and you would see things about beautiful places where you could play golf or go surfing or... um, or do something else, and you're thinking, hmm, interesting that there are no um, such books about um, uh, places to swim. 
Um, but, you know, that's just changed. It's a, it's a book out at the moment with that very title, Places We Swim, showcasing a number of the ocean pools and other fabulous uh, outdoor places to swim in Australia. Even along the inland rivers, um, again, if you were a small um, um, local government area, you couldn't keep uh, guarantee the water quality in that river. You know, it was beyond your scope and scale altogether, and that was why some communities then started turning their backs on the river and creating a place where they could control the quality of the water. Uh, you know, it's a safe and desirable to create a safe and desirable place to swim. But I think in, a, in keeping the um, ocean pools are going to have the same water quality as the waters around them. So keeping our coastal waters clean is a good idea and, you know, on every um, set of criteria I think you could think of. Um, and as long as we can do that, then I think the ocean fields will always be a, a wonderful place to swim. And each one is, as you say, so distinctive that you some of the indoor and in-ground fields have that sense of placeness. So you feel quite separated from the environment. Yep. With an ocean pool, it's a very distinctive set of sense of place. Yes, I agree. I completely agree. And mm. uh, so, mm. just just finally, so you're in in WA now. Do you and and you said you came mm. late to swimming. Do you do you still swim? Do you have a, a local ocean pool that you get to? No, no, I haven't been doing very much swimming lately. If I, I swim, I probably swim at uh, Bathurst Beach at Fremantle. Um, but these days, I'm more likely to be out on the river in my kayak. I oh, live well, closer to the to the Swan River than I do to the um, the ocean. Okay, can you swim in the Swan River? Sometimes it depends on the um, there can be algal algal um, issues. Okay. So you know if we have a blue green algae outbreak, and I live in the narrow part of the river where you know you do have to keep an eye on water quality for those sorts of things. But yes, well, there is a, a still a swim through Perth uh, uh, race that's held every year in the in the wider part of the the river. All right. Okay. Well, there's some very famous ocean swims over there, Rottnest Island being being one of them, although that's not really a pool, that's 14 kilometres. Until Perth hosted the Commonwealth Games in the 1960s, um, Perth didn't have any in-ground pools or any indoor pools. It had uh, all of the competition was in the in the river baths. Is that right? The um, 1960s? Mm, mm. That's very, that's, I mean, that's so, strangely so, recent, isn't it? That's right. So the, the river was a very, very, and um, interestingly, the... The ocean pools uh, along um, Perth coastline have been recreational rather than competition pools, as was the case in New South Wales, where um, you know there were uh, swimming clubs forming at ocean pools in the 19th century with considerable enthusiasm. Okay, right. It, 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 so WA worked differently. The um, the competition pools were the river baths. That, that's interesting. I mean, I'm sure you find this all, all the way around the world. If you, if you sort of dig into a, a local area's culture, there'll be different reasons for for the pools. It, it's been interesting exploration of, of the local area. That's right. And I think um, Murray Phillips' um, uh, centenary, Swimming Australia, 100 years of the history of swimming in Australia, he has a, a lovely chapter looking at the variety of places we've, we swim and, you know, ocean pools and other sorts of, uh, of pools. But it's more variety than in a lot of other um, swimming and pool cultures. And I think that's very important to keep that variety because if you swim in an ocean pool, as I said, you have to share that with other life forms. You have to uh, accept that the force of the ocean is going to be bigger than than you. You have to pay attention to the waves. And you have a different um, sense of yourself and and uh, of the sensation of swimming 
than if you're swimming in a more controlled environment. And if you learn to swim or you actually have the experience of swimming in an ocean pool, then you're much more equipped to deal with swimming in a uh, in, in an open water situation. So they're quite important for people who only want to swim in pools, but also for people who want to make the transition to open water swims. So they're, mm. they're excellent places to train and very appropriate places for surf lifesavers to train. Mm. And if you learn to swim there, I think it makes a, a difference to how you you, you, you relate to swimming and to uh, potential swimming venues for the rest of your life. I've taken you twice as long as I, uh, <laughs> I said I might, so um, <laughs> um, I, I think that that's probably all I uh, had, had to ask. Except, mate, well, maybe what's next in your research? What, where are you going to take this? Um, well, actually, we're, um, we'd love to get to the stage where we, could, we would be able to support other people to do research. We think there's a, an enormous amount of work that could be done looking at oral histories of ocean pools and the people who have used and valued and um, and enthused and, and about them and supported them. Um, and I think each pool would very much have its own separate story and I'd love to be able to start working on, on some things like that. But obviously we're a small group. We run on a shoestring and we depend on memberships and donations. So if we can build more members, raise more money, acquire more sponsors, we'll be able to do more to advocate for and promote the ongoing new study and celebration of ocean pools right around the world. And I think to give that sense of solidarity to people who are struggling to keep one pool open to see, help them see themselves as part of a bigger picture and look at tactics that have worked elsewhere that they might be able to adopt, I think is a big help. Thanks very much to Dr. Marie-Louise McDermott for that wonderful chat on Ocean Pools. If you'd like any more information on anything you heard today, including Marie-Louise's PhD or her website, get over to our website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you'll find links to all that information and also links to the music that was used in today's episode. Thanks again. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on the pod.